This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Giovanni Singleton, Lunch Poems Coordinator, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you all here today for the opening of our 18th season. I invite you all to sign up on our email list, um, which is over at the librarian's desk, and to pick up one of our event posters, which we also have available. Um, We are also on Facebook, so please log on and become our friend. We would love to see you there. Um, Also, our website, lunchpoems.berkeley.edu, you can view this reading and all of our past readings as webcasts and as YouTube videos. So we are present. We have our own playlist. Now uh, we welcome our host for this afternoon's program. Robert Hass is director of Lunch Poems and recently his collection of essays, What Light Can Do, was awarded a Penn Literary Award. So congratulations, Paul. And assisting him this afternoon um, is university librarian Thomas Leonard. So thank you all for coming, and please do enjoy this afternoon's esteemed readers. So, uh, good day. I, I need especially to thank Tom Leonard, who's going to be sharing, introducing duties with me, and Dave Dewar from Development of the Library for uh, putting this now almost 20 years of listening to poetry at noon here, um, right at the center and at the heart of the university in the library. This event is always completely thrilling to hear a lot of different voices and a, a lot of different people who do different things with their lives um, say uh, their poems. And uh, we begin by welcoming our new chief of the University Police Department, Margot Bennett. She's has more than 35 years of law enforcement experience from community police work to expertise in investigating major crime scenes at the federal level. That sounds like a TV series. Her policing career began at West Georgia University where she got a bachelor's degree in sociology and criminal justice and a master's in counseling psychology. That seems like a very useful degree for someone who's administering a department. After earning her degree, she became an FBI special agent where she worked for more than a decade. She came to Berkeley as a captain in 2002. She's been an amazing member of this community, and this April she was selected as chief. Please welcome her. Thank you for the opportunity to come today. Um, Today I'm reading a poem by Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver is a contemporary American poet, very successful, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1984. She currently lives in Massachusetts. She's still writing poetry today. She's not so young. And um, I like this poem that, that I picked out. It's called The Journey. I'll tell you, the reason I like this poem is because I find myself in it. Her words resonate with my own journey, my own paths through life, making my way through life decisions and defining moments. But I also see in this poem 
the very reason why we're here at this wonderful place called Cal. It is here where we create a place and encourage our students to find their voice, to listen to that voice, and to use that to excel through life. So with that, I'm going to read The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Thank you. Thank you, Marga, so much. I've once got to walk on that beach with Mary Oliver below her house, and it was interesting to see her. There's a kind of winding around a cove, and she uh, knew it very well and by heart, and walking just a little bit in back of her, I thought about her talking about what journeys you take. It was wonderful to hear that poem. Our next reader is the busiest person on this campus, I'm sure, and it's a great gift that he took time to be with us today. Nicholas Dirks is the 10th chancellor of the University of California. He's been here since June 1st, but a lot of us haven't had a chance to welcome him yet, so here's a chance. He's a scholar as well as someone who makes higher education happen. Um, He's won a number of the awards that scholars win in his books, Casts of Mind, Colonialism, the Making of Modern India, The Hollow Crown, Ethno-History of an Indian Kingdom, The Scandal of Empire, and the Creation of Imperial Britain. I've been reading this summer. They're writer's books. He's an absolutely terrific writer. We have a president of the university who's an important scholar and a terrific writer. Please welcome him. There can be no better introduction than to have a poet whose work one has admired for years, but who I've only now had the pleasure of meeting in person, introduce me as a writer. So for that uh, alone, I'm uh, grateful. The last time I was in this room was the day that I was confirmed uh, in this role as the 10th chancellor of this great university. And of course, it's the first time I've been able to get back in the library. But uh, 
but this is a, a place that obviously means a lot to me, uh, and I'm delighted to be here. I'm going to read, I'm going to be a, a little, uh, I'm going to take a little bit of your time to read parts of a longer poem, but it's by Seamus Haney, who of course died last week, and I did not know until I read his obituary in the New York Times that he had taught here at Berkeley, and he taught here for three years or so in the early 70s, two years, uh, and came back regularly uh, as a visitor. He was given an honorary degree at Fordham University in 1982, and he wrote verses for the commencement, from which I will read a few. Inspire me then, didactic muse, beyond cliches and pompous views of art and science, to be dolce et utile, to speak sweetly and usefully about the world and the academy and their alliance? Or is it not a misalliance? Ivory towers in a world of violence and corporate money? Are college walls perhaps a door shut on the workers and the poor, while the privileged and the few ignore the unwashed many? Do we not mystify the facts and milk the taxpayer of his tax by the illusion that our minds serve much higher ends than bending backs and blistered hands. How much of common good depends on education. Poetry even that I love best was put severely to the test in recent years by guns and streets, bombs on the tracks, human flesh in plastic sacks, excremental prison blocks and astonished tears on the streets of Derry and Belfast. At bombers, as, at bombers burst in their own blast, at restaurants exploding with their clientele. At berserk police, like hounds of hell, shots fired at the funeral, that country rampant. In face of which, who can believe what will survive of us is love. As the poet says, and this is far from the whole story, there is the nuclear armory to blight the earth to a dead berry hung in space. So the manuscript, the drawing board, the microscope, the Bronze Age hoard, the library. That studious, concentrated hush when the bird of mine flits from its bush and sings its truths like a wise thrush inspired and merry. So part of me half stands apart beyond the pale of books and art, of dictionaries, warm afternoons in lecture halls, nostalgic walks past ivied walls, and extramural bacchanals seem luxuries, seem at times escapes, evasions of evil times, the fates of nations, but only seem, because that evil be withstood, these acts of mind are kindling wood to fire the beacons of that good eternal dream. The dream that mind's enlightenment will restore man as he was meant to be before his mind was darkened by the fall, or if that is too patent doctrinal, say instead that man's survival in his brute nature is not the goal of history, but rather man's self-mastery, and then transcendence, say, understanding civilizes, wakens responsibilities, promotes ideas of peace and justice, and demotes vengeance. Which is why, before the first college was built on earth, the men of knowledge were sacrosanct, magi, druids, seers, and augurs, brehons, temple priests, witch doctors, and a thousand other characters long since defunct. They all had place and influence. They were, as twere, both shrinks and gurus. They all had tenure. Then, so had the philosopher. 
So the king of kings learnt to revere that learned senior. Yet between the intellectuals and the powers that be on sea and land, conflicts assumed. In any educated forum, the index of banned liborium and the church's power to censorum will be condemned, as will the case of Galileo. But even popes with names like Leo, I love the rhymes. <laughs> Men orthodox and autocratic, who would keep the sum of knowledge static? Men seem menstem and anti-democratic and behind the, the, behind the times. They too praised liberal pursuits employed artists and Jesuits, and blessed the hermits. Home decoration was their game. Their employees soon made their name. Raphael's and Michelangelo's fame was great as Kermit's. So even though some torturers and SS men were connoisseurs in general, history implies equation between the good and education. An unselfish self-cultivation is the ideal. All of us are amphibious between our universities and where we come from. No one gets born in a campus bed. Even the trendiest school of ed has never weaned or bathed or breastfed or cleaned a bum. <laughs> no co-ed dorm supplies the joys of an attic full of dusty toys and old dolls' houses. No faculty of engineering repeats the thrill of tinkering with model planes that hankering to fly with aces. It seems illiterate solitude is the first place where the true and good awakens in us. The latter freedom we call leisure cannot supply that buried treasure, which is the basis and the measure of personalities. And that which we name imagination, a word I cite with much elation and some unease, because it can sound slight and airy, an entry in the dictionary, a bubble word. Yet while I'm wary, I realize I still want to declare its great sustaining force early and late from youth to age. It does not just mean fancy thoughts, accountants, lawyers, graduates in medicine, as well as poets using language. All need its salutary power. All men and women must beware who would deny it and go against their childhood's grain and dry up like earth parched for rain. They'll grow mechanical and then no drug or diet, no health farm clinic, yoga course, no mantra om, no Star Wars force will compensate. For what is lost when the mind divides, even science now concedes, the brain has two conjugal sides, the left and right, that have to marry intuition to the analytic reason for psychic balance. Head sleeps with heart, begets a creature, free yet cornered in its nature to be your whole self, you must mate your brains and glands. So scholarship and art must be fragrant with personality and moral feeling. Distinction's not an ego trip. Good luck helps many to the top. Yet once up there, you still can slip and keep on falling. Everything flows, an old Greek said. Nothing's secure. Gold's only lead when you stop to think on your way up show consideration to the ones you meet on your way down. The Latin root of condescension means we all sink. Let self-will be anathema. Let the hierarchy and mafia join hand and glove to doom and excommunicate whoever's not compassionate, whoever will not contemplate the world through love. And now I'm going to skip to his last five lines, and that's it because it is, after all, 
for him a commencement as well as a meditation. Onwards towards the sarsaparilla, Jack Daniels, Bushmills, Schlitz, and Miller, <laughs> the dry martini, and if the drier types demure, or if your dates object, declare you were prescribed whiskey galore by Dr. Haney. <laughs> A tough speech to follow. Um, Keith Feldman has the role of following the chancellor. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Ethnic Studies and affiliated faculty with designated emphasis on both women, gender, and sexuality and critical theory. He received his PhD in English from the University of Washington in 2008 and joined the Ethnic Studies faculty the following year. He is currently completing his first book entitled Special Relationships, Israel, Palestine, and U.S. Imperial Culture. Welcome to Lunch Home. Uh, good afternoon. The uh, intimidating uh, joys of alphabetical order. Uh, thank you. Thanks for the invitation. I'm incredibly honored to be here and to share this lectern uh, with so many uh, wonderful uh, colleagues today. So I wanted to read uh, a brief excerpt of a much longer poem uh, that I was introduced to uh, nearly 15 years ago uh, in advance of a, a semester-long study as an undergraduate uh, in Jerusalem and Al-Quds. Uh, and it's a... Uh, it's a poem that I continue to think with and I really feel has uh, uh, animated me uh, into the kind of scholarship that I'm, uh, I've been embarking on. It's a, it's a poem by the uh, important Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish uh, entitled Dakira Lil Nisyan uh, uh, in English, Memory for Forgetfulness. Uh, it was translated by uh, Ibrahim Muhawi. Uh, and published by UC Press, uh, our very own, in English uh, uh, in 1995. Uh, now, the poem is uh, kind of a, a prose poem uh, about the poet's small acts of survival uh, in and around his apartment in Beirut uh, during a single day of the Israeli Air Force's intense military intervention into civil war in August 1982. And so, of course, it's timely... Uh, and for better or worse, it always seems rather timely. Uh, the poem begins with an epigraph uh, from the French critic Roland Barthes, uh, translated into English. It is, it's precisely because I forget that I read. So I'll read a, a really brief excerpt from Memory for Forgetfulness. Gently place one spoonful of the ground coffee electrified with the aroma of cardamom on the rippling surface of the hot water. Then stir slowly, first clockwise, then up and down. Add the second spoonful and stir up and down, then counterclockwise. Now add the third. Between spoonfuls, take the pot away from the fire and bring it back. For the final touch, dip the spoon in the melting powder. Fill and raise it a little over the pot, then let it drop back. 
Repeat this several times until the water boils again, and a small mass of the blonde coffee remains on the surface, rippling and ready to sink. Don't let it sink. Turn off the heat and pay no heed to the rockets. Take the coffee to the narrow corridor and pour it lovingly and with a sure hand into a little white cup. Dark colored cups spoil the freedom of the coffee. Observe the paths of the steam and the tent of rising aroma. Now, light your first cigarette. Made for this cup of coffee, the cigarette and with the, the flavor existence of existence itself, unequaled by the taste of any other except that which follows love, as the woman smokes now, away the last sweat and the fading voice. I know my coffee, my mother's coffee, and the coffee of my friends. I can tell them from afar, and I know the differences among them. No coffee is like another, and my defense of coffee is a plea for difference itself. No coffee is like another. Every house has its coffee, and every hand, too, because no soul is like another. I can tell coffee from far away. It moves in a straight line at first, then zigzags, winds, bends, sighs, and turns on flat, rocky surfaces and slopes. It wraps itself around an oak, then loosens and drops into a wadi, looks back and melts with longing to go to the top of the mountain. It does go up the mountain as it disperses in the gossamer of a shepherd's pipe, taking it back to its first home. Thanks. Thank you. Keith Gillis, on my left, is one of our great campus citizens. Good luck to you finding the name of a committee he has not served on with the Academic Senate or the administration. In uh, thinking of three aspects of his life, I think he would put uh, equal emphasis on the fact that he is the Dean of the College of Natural Resources. He is the chair of the California State Board of Forestry and Fire Protection, and that he is the instructor in a freshman seminar for global environmental uh, for the Global Environmental Theme House. Keith. So I chose a poem that uh, I read long after, for the first time, long after I'd made a decision to go into an academic career in forestry, uh, which was not where I thought I was headed originally. It's by Emerson, and when I read it, it took me back to being a young forester, especially when I could be by myself, uh, when I had a break from measurements, uh, working in the bald cypress swamps of the eastern shore of Maryland or in the mountains of Idaho or in the, the lakes and jack pine forests of Minnesota. The Redora. In May, when sea winds pierced our solitudes, I found the fresh Redora in the woods, spreading its leafless blooms in a damp nook to please the desert and the sluggish brook, the purple petals fallen in the pool made the black water with their beauty gay. Here might the red bird come his plumes to cool and court the flower that cheapens his array. 
Rodora, if the sages ask thee why this charm is wasted on earth and sky, tell them, dear, that if eyes are made for seeing, then beauty is its own excuse for being. Why wert thou here, O rival of the rose? I never thought to ask, I never knew. But in my simple ignorance, suppose the self-same power that brought me here brought you. Alexander Givental was born in Moscow, in Russia, and he is currently professor of mathematics here at Berkeley. Um, in this year, he is jointly publishing with a graduate student a work on 20th century Russian poets. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Моим стихам, написанным так рано, что и не знала я, что я поэт, сорвавшимся, как брызги из фонтана, как искры из ракет. My rhymes so early written that an inkling I hardly had, I bore a poet's mark. My rhymes that burst as from a fountain sprinklings, as from a rocket sparks, that broke like little nymphs in devil's dresses into a dormant, incense-breathing shrine. My rhymes about death and adolescence, unread, unheeded rhymes, that rest on dusty shelves of book resellers, as yet unsold, uncut, and undisturbed. My poems will, like precious wines in cellars, live to their rightful turn. Uh, this is a poem of Marina Tsvetaeva, uh, and uh, it has become her signature piece. Uh, here, uh, the Russian original of it uh, is printed as a mural on a wall of building in such a Russian-speaking town as uh, Leiden, the Netherlands. Uh, so the, uh, the translation is taken from, uh, from this book, uh, which uh, is our joint work with Elizabeth wilson Egolf. Unfortunately, I don't see her here. Uh, so the title, please, camera people, could you zoom in onto this uh, beautiful dust jacket? Uh, it's printed here in uh, silver foil to you in 10 decades. Uh, it's the title of another poem from this collection, but uh, it literally applies to this one because it was, uh, it's dated by May of 1913. And uh, if you do the arithmetic, you realize that uh, it's written by 20-year-old Marina long before uh, most of that uh, precious wine she's talking about was even harvested. Um, so, uh, now, okay, uh, let her speak. Um, 1939, uh, the Nazis invade uh, Czechia. Water in the eyes of love and anger flood. O Czechia retired in tears, Spain soaked in blood. O terrible moon black that blanketed all light. Accept our maker back my ticket for the right. Thus I refuse to be. With your inhuman breeds, thus I refuse to breathe. With vultures of the street, thus I refuse to scream. With pirates of the plain, refuse to swim downstream on corpses to the drain. And neither oral worlds I want, nor seer's eyes. To your demented world, one word applies. Tonight. 
And the uh, well, you know, translating is is, uh, is a love affair with the original. So I was asked to read my favorite poem from the book. There are twenty equally qualifying uh, ex favorites, uh, but the the uh, true favorite is the latest one. It's always the latest one. So we're still working on it. So it's here. Um, love, precious love, and from the deathbed silence, I'll come alive, allured, abashed, alight. O oh, sweetheart, even in a grave asylum and in Elysium will stay light. And do indeed I have this pair of priceless strong wings to hold a bushel on my heart? This, the swaddled folks, the voiceless one in aisles, I will not play their miserable part. Instead, I'll free my elbows in a bout, my springy torso from your cradle bore death, rescue for a hundred miles about. The snow is melted and the forest burned. And if I, squeezing tight, wings, ankles, shoulders, did let the hearse consign myself away, then only so that then defying coldness, thrice in verse, or in a rose awake. Thank you. Tim Hampton is chair of the French department and a professor of comparative literature who has been the recipient of the campus's Distinguished Teaching Award. His own teaching and scholarship often takes him to poetry. Now, while uh, help wanted notices are rare in introductions, and Tim did not put me up to this, I will say that a very important collection to the French department needs some tender, loving care. And if there is any pro bono cataloger out there, see Tim after he reads. Tim. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so the story behind that is that the, we have a small departmental library that was uh, robbed last spring. And uh, they stole the computer that had uh, the catalog on it, and the catalog had not been backed up. So we have to go from there. Okay. So I'd like to read a, a poem by Bertolt Brecht, the 20th century German uh, poet and dramatist. This is a poem that I've had in my head since I was in college. And I particularly like this poem because I have a clear memory of the day I purchased the book in which I found this poem. Uh, my phone bill was overdue. Uh, I owed AT&T, which used to be called IT&T in those days, uh, some money. And uh, I didn't have enough money in my checking account to buy the book in which this poem was and to pay my phone bill. And I have a, a, a clear memory of standing on the sidewalk outside the front window of the Living Batch bookstore on Central Avenue in Albuquerque, where I was living, and thinking that you have to choose in life between poetry and the phone company. <laughs> so this poem is from 1932, and I'm reading Michael Hamburger's translation, and the poem is called Of All Works. Of all works, I prefer those used and worn. Copper vessels with dents and with flattened rims, knives and forks, whose wooden handles many hands have grooved. Such shapes seemed the noblest to me. So too the flagstones around old houses, trodden by many feet and ground down with clumps of grass in the cracks, these too are happy works. 
absorbed into the use of the many, frequently changed, they improve their appearance, growing enjoyable because often enjoyed. Even the remnants of broken sculptures with lopped off hands I love, they also lived with me. If they were dropped, at least they must have been carried. If men knocked them over, they cannot have stood too high up. Buildings half dilapidated revert to the look of buildings not yet completed, generously designed. Their fine proportions can already be guessed, yet they still make demands on our understanding. At the same time, they have served already, indeed, have been left behind. All this makes me glad. Dylan Hendricks, who will proceed from that side, um, tells me that her love of language was cultivated as an undergraduate, undergraduate in the rhetoric department at Cal. Um, today, she does extremely valuable work with a field of development that I think has the slickest title, gift planning. <laughs> gift planning is, of course, the good works we can all do when we are dead. But it sounds better to call it gift planning. <laughs> Dylan, welcome. <laughs> Thank you to the Bancroft for having me here today and for, to Dave for putting me up to this. Um, as much as my work life revolves around those who are no longer with us, uh, I have taken this opportunity to select a poem to my son who will be joining me next month, I hope, early. Um, <laughs> so the recent scientific studies say that uh, infants who are read to in utero recognize and are soothed by what they hear. So I hope that he will take this poem with him. Uh, this poem is I Carry Your Heart With Me, I Carry It In by E.E. E. Cummings. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear. And whatever is done by only me is your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful, you are my world, my true. And it's you who are whatever a moon has always meant. And whatever a sun will sing, will always sing, is you. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Patricia Penn Hilden is a professor of Native American history and comparative ethnic studies. And she's been at Berkeley for, I think, if my edition is correct, about seven years. She's the author of four books, and she's currently writing on the long history of incarceration. She is um, a self-described poetry fanatic all her life, but not a poet. She will, however, teach a big ideas course, uh, no doubt with that sensib sensibility, on the subject of prisons uh, in the spring of 2014. 
Welcome to the podium. And let me give credit also to the other faculty who are teaching the Big Ideas course, Victoria Robinson, who is here, Jill Stoner from Architecture, and Jonathan Simon from the School of Law. I'd like to thank everyone for having me here today. Uh, This is delightful, and it's been a great series, and I've enjoyed it. I've been at Cal since 1995, in fact, and I've been retired for seven years. (laughs) So... um, I'd like to thank Giovanni Singleton particularly for organizing all of us, which can't be easy. Um, as I thought about what poem I wanted to share, I decided that I'd like to bring together the scholarly work that I'm doing as well as some of the other work that goes on here at Cal, um, supporting the community of formerly incarcerated people we have on campus, um, amazing students, and it's a privilege to know them and to teach them. For some time, this little poem has been hanging around in my head, both because of that work and also because of a very personal reason. My grandfather was one of the first American Indian children taken by force from their homes and locked up in federal Indian boarding schools. His was Haskell Indian Institute, where he was locked up in the 1880s. We now know that these children suffered every kind of abuse. They were not allowed to go home. Their parents were rarely allowed to visit. Letters from home were routinely seized and kept from the children. My grandfather would never talk about this place, but after he died when I was 27, my brother and I got his records from Haskell. We were surprised and delighted to see that he had successfully run away. His transcript reads, deserter. A line at the bottom reads, incorrigible. He had stayed at Haskell for only three years before running away, successfully avoiding the marshals, bounty hunters, sheriffs, and police who went after these children and brought them back in handcuffs to be severely punished. So here's Louise Erdrich's little poem from 1984, Indian Boarding School, The Runaways. Home's the place we head for in our sleep. Boxcars stumbling north in dreams don't wait for us. We catch them on the run. The rails, old lacerations that we love, shoot parallel across the face and break just under Turtle Mountains. Writing scars, you can't get lost. Home is the place they cross. The lame guard strikes a match and makes the dark less tolerant. We watch through cracks in boards as the land starts rolling, rolling till it hurts to be here, cold and regulation clothes. We know the sheriff's waiting at mid-run to take us back. His car is dumb and warm. The highway doesn't rock. It only hums like a wing of long insults. The worn-down welts of ancient punishments lead back and forth. All runaways wear dresses, long green ones, the color you would think shame was. We scrub the sidewalks down because it's shameful work. Our brushes cut the stone in watered arcs, and in the soap, frail outlines shiver clear a moment, things us kids pressed on the dark face before it hardened, pale, remembering delicate old injuries, the spines of names and leaves. Thank you. Maria Mavrudi is a professor of Byzantine history and classics 
She has translated Byzantine poetry into English and has worked on cultural exchanges between the medieval Greek and Arabic-speaking worlds, especially in the domains of science, magic, and divination. She has been, and many librarians know this, a generous and effective builder of our collections in these areas. We thank you again and welcome you. So the poet I chose for today is A.E. Stallings. I chose her for a very personal reason. I think she's a little bit like me. She was born in Athens, Georgia, but she lives in Athens, Greece. <laughs> she lives there with a Greek husband and a little boy, like I do. And she was trained in the classics. And what I love most about her voice is that she takes things that are very old and she merges them with things that are right of this moment, and there's nothing antiquarian about it. But I didn't choose a poem like this for today. I chose something else. It's called buzuki. This is a Greek instrument. It looks like an oud. It makes a sound that uses quarter tones. So it's outside normal Western uh, melody lines. And a lot of people cannot hear its delicacy. Uh, like They cannot really hear it. They, they don't like it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Except for people who like Gregorian chant, who like uh, jazz music, etc. And it's an instrument that's used to play a kind of music called rebetica. It's called the Greek blues. It's an urban kind of music. So what I think she evokes in the poem is a scene in a Greek taverna, maybe right now, maybe five years ago. And uh, the reason I like it is because it very poignantly brings home what it means to be both an insider and an outsider. And uh, she, she says she doesn't understand a lot, but from what she says, if you are Greek as a native speaker, as a native member of the culture, you, you know she understands everything, and yet she pretends she's in and out at the same time. So after five years here, I understand most of the sung words, recognize the tune, but there's an element I'll never get that isn't born in me. The way they play, one manages to hold his cigarette between two fingers on his strumming hand, takes drags between his solos, and then soon how something changes. A woman starts to sway around an absent center. Ancient wrongs cherished. The cigarette gives up its ghost. The music drives now. Someone makes a toast as suddenly the melody arrives at minor, Asia minor, in whose songs the hands of lovers always rhyme with knives. It's Taheria ke Tamacheria, and it's a reference to a very well-known Rebetico song. So you, you know she's in the inside, although she pretends to be looking in from the outside. Thank you. Well, what an earlier speaker described as the tyranny of the alphabet brings us to our final uh, authority. No, we have an addition. Dave Dewar will set us straight. I'm okay. <laughs> I have not met Jane Yoon, but I look forward to the pleasure. She is a financial services analyst in the English department and speaking as an administrator. It is a high calling. Welcome to the library. I'd like to thank Giovanni. I think this is such a great thing. And um, 
I'm not really much of a poet, but I will try to read Elizabeth Bishop's poem called The Fish. Um, I like this poem because in this busy world, I don't know how I got so busy, but it reminds me to uh, make time to look at things. The Fish. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat, half out of water with my hook fast in the corner of his mouth. He didn't fight. He hadn't fought at all. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable and homely. Here and there, his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper, shapes like full-blown roses stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with tiny white sea lice. And underneath, two or three rags of green weed hung down. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills, fresh and crisp with blood that can cut so badly, I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed, the irises backed and packed with tarnished tinfoil, seen through the lenses of old scratch is in glass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object towards the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like, hung five old pieces of fish line, or four in a wire leader, with the swivel still attached with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth, a green line frayed at the end where he broke it, two heavier lines and a fine black thread still crimped from the strain and snap when it broke and he got away. Like metals with their ribbons frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw, I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat from the pool of bilge where oil had spread a rainbow around the rusted engine to the baler rusted orange. The sun cracked thwarts, the oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels, until everything was rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. And I let the fish go. It is, of course, appropriate at Berkeley that we um, begin our year with verse. The university began that way. Bishop Barclay, who inspired the founders, was not referenced for his contributions to science or to philosophy. The founders had in mind Bishop Barclay's poetry. Um, We are in that tradition. Thank you very much for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.